0: Here it is!
1: From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, we had a um, legal analyst ready to join us on this week's program to talk about the um, impeachment thing. You know, because everybody else has one. But unfortunately, the, uh, the folks at LegalZoom called him. They have a big rush thing this weekend, so he's off doing that. So in the meantime, news of inspectors General... Because this has been going on for a while, apparently. You know, these are the guys and gals. Hi, gals. Who um, have independent observation powers over the workings of our federal government. So you really, if you're running our federal government, you don't want those. And so here we have, from the Federal Times, the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency has launched a new tool to track the number of vacant inspector general positions in the federal government. How many? There are currently 11 open inspector general positions across the FedGov, seven of which have been open for longer than a year, five open longer than two years. All right, then. The tracker also includes how long the positions have been vacant. says the chair and Department of Justice Inspector General Michael Horowitz, who just uh, delivered an interesting report, "Quote: Filling inspector general positions has long been a priority for the oversight community. Who knew? No matter how able or experienced an acting inspector general may be, permanent leadership at any organization is important for stability and long-term success." Unquote him. Agencies lacking a permanent inspector general right now include Department of Defense, Education, Health and Human Services, and Treasury the office of personnel management and cia are also on the list. All right. Everybody's breathing easy. Nine of the vacancies require president Trump's nom- <laughs> what? <laughs> president Trump's nomination and Senate confirmation. Horowitz added permanent IG's inevitably are seen as having greater independence as such a timely process for addressing vacant IG positions is critical to and Inspector General's success in overseeing federal programs and personnel. That's his quote, and of course the the contrary would be true as well. If he's not permanent, why, he's got less clout. It's a system. Hello, welcome to the show.
0: go, we fall in love, and we fall back out, I'll give you anything you want, anything you want, anything, anything, just don't tell me, no, you stop it still, then you make it rust, you're like a pig. Me to stop, but I keep on going. Don't to stop, but I keep on going. Don't to stop, but I keep on going. Keep on, keep on, keep on. You'll never stop.
1: Santa Monica, California, this is Le Show. I'm Harry Shearer. And now...
0: It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart world after all. It's a smart, smart world.
1: Talking about a system, ladies and gentlemen, to doctors opening patients' electronic records across the U.S., the alert would have looked innocuous enough. A pop-up would appear asking about a patient's level of pain. Then a drop-down menu would list treatments ranging from a referral to a pain specialist to a prescription for an opioid painkiller. Click a button, the program would create a treatment plan. For uh, three years up to last spring, the alert went off about 230 million times. The tool existed thanks to a secret deal According to Bloomberg News, the banker, a software company called Practice Fusion, was paid by a major opioid manufacturer to design the tool in an effort to boost prescriptions for addictive pain pills, even though overdose overdose deaths had almost tripled during the past 15 years. The software was used by tens of thousands of doctors' offices. Remember when we were told how great electronic medical records were going to be for all of us? I think that was during the Obama Obama administration. The existence of this system was revealed this week thanks to a government investigation. Damn government. Practice Fusion agreed to pay $145 million to resolve civil and criminal suits or cases, according to documents filed in Vermont federal court. Must not be crowded up there. Practice Fusion admitted to the scheme with an unnamed opioid maker, though... um, the details of the government case closely match a partnership between Practice Fusion and Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin. Representatives for Purdue and the Vermont U.S. Attorney declined to comment. The owner of Practice Fusion, All Scripts Healthcare Solutions, said in a statement, the conduct predated the, the, its, its purchase of Practice Fusion, and it has furthered, further strengthened compliance at Practice Fusion, but it didn't answer specific questions about this deal. Employees estimated internally that the drug company could add almost 3,000 patients and bolster opioid sales by as much as 11 million dollars through the deal. Under the contract, the drug maker paid Practice Fusion almost a million. The pharma this is a quote, the pharmaceutical industry was egregious in advancing and propelling the access of opioids to a wider and wider population said a professor Professor at Harvard Medical School, Bertha Madras she described the practice fusion arrangement as nefarious big tech companies have large scale plans to reinvent healthcare promising to revolutionize areas such as electronic records a crucial source of data about consumer health there's that word
2: More data! More data! We need more data! Come on! More data! More data! Huh? Get some data for me! More data! More data! More data! We need
0: more! More!
1: The practice fusion case shows how such plans can be exploited and even provide a new avenue for financial interests to influence treatment. The San Francisco-based company, Practice Fusion, was founded in 2005, became known for its unique model of providing free ad supported health record software to independent doctors. It's used in roughly 30,000 practices. The idea was to get the opioid maker's pain drugs to certain kinds of patients, ones who aren't taking opioids, or those being prescribed the company's less profitable products. It also aimed to secure longer prescriptions. Companies agreed to do a research study, but according to an internal Practice Fusion email in the court papers, the drug company considered it, quote, all about marketing. What are you looking at? Practice Fusion reported to the drug company in 2016 the project was working as intended, shifting prescriptions to the company's extended release opioids. It continued, even after a lawyer for the drug maker raised concerns about the substance of the program and started. A legal review. Electronic medical record makers have come under increased scrutiny for their business practices, including by the U.S. Justice Department. Oh, that. Since they've grown under the implementation of the Affordable Care Act. Practice Fusion did have similar agreements with makers of other drugs. Fourteen such deals, according to the government's civil case. Fourteen such deals with pharmaceutical companies between 2013 and 2017. That's smart. And Charter, the uh, cable company, is killing its home security service and telling customers that security devices they've purchased will stop working once the service is shut down February 5. Your house just got done. The impending shutdown of customers' anger at Charter, cable company also known by the brand name Spectrum, has been widely reported over the past month. Over the years, some customers have spent large sums on products It will no longer work. One user posting on a forum said they spent $1,200 on sensors and IP cameras, which will be essentially useless in a couple of weeks. Well, actually, now. Uh, The devices won't connect to other alarm monitoring services. Charter will no longer offer the ability to remotely manage the system and view security video. Charter partnered with Amazon's Ring and Abode to give customers a free equipment bundle. If they buy a year of monitoring, those deals may not be enough to compensate customers who purchased a lot of charter devices over the years. And P.S., charter is not providing refunds. That is a smart world. Oh, by the way, um, a note to people who are hearing this program. When it's broadcast on Sunday, on the first Sunday in February, this is a rare day. Not just because it's Super Bowl Sunday now. Come on, re- relax. Calm down. It's a palindromic date, 0202-2020. Happy palindrome, everybody. Now, try to be surprised as I share with you some news of the atom. The materials that the United States and other countries plan to use to store high-level nuclear waste are likely to degrade faster than anyone previously knew much like the United States itself. no, because of the way those materials interact, new research shows, the findings published in the journal Nature Materials, <laughs> I read it for the materials, showed that corrosion of nuclear waste storage materials accelerates because of changes in the chemistry of the nuclear waste solution and because of the way the materials interact with one another. How could we not have known that before? How could we not have asked... This indicates the current models may not be sufficient to keep the waste safely stored, unquote. Lei Guo, lead author of the study, deputy director of Ohio State Center for Performance and Design of Nuclear Waste Forms and Containers. That's some center, part of the University's College of Engineering. And he continues, it shows that we need to develop a new model for storing nuclear waste. Never too late. Department. The team's research focused on storage materials for high-level nuclear waste, primarily defense waste, the legacy of past nuclear arms production. The waste is highly radioactive, while some types of the waste have half-lives of about 30 years. Others, for example, your plutonium, have a half-life that can be tens of thousands of years. The half-life, as you know, is the time needed for half of the material to decay. So it ain't safe for a while after the half-life point. The United States currently, as you know, has no disposal site for that waste. It's typically stored near the plants where it's produced. Wouldn't you like a nuclear plant in your neighborhood now? A permanent site has been proposed for Yucca Mountain in Nevada, though plans have stalled. Countries around the world have debated the best way to deal with nuclear waste. Only one, Finland, has started construction on a long-term repository. But the long-term plan for high-level defense waste storage around the globe is largely the same, according to Science Daily. It involves mixing the nuclear waste with other materials to form glass or ceramics. Ooh, and then encasing those pieces of glass and ceramics, now radioactive, inside metallic canisters. canister would then be buried deep underground. Job done. In this study, the researchers found that when exposed to an aqueous environment, glass and ceramics interact with stainless steel to accelerate corrosion, especially of the glass and ceramic materials holding the waste. Well, corrosion can't hurt. The study qualitative, 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 qualitatively measured the difference between accelerated corrosion and natural corrosion of the storage materials. Guo called it, quote, severe, unquote. In uh, the real-life cer- scenario, he said, the glass or ceramic waste forms would be in close contact with stainless steel canisters under specific conditions, the corrosion of stainless steel will go crazy. Still a quote. It creates a super-aggressive environment that can corrode surrounding materials. But, you know, we will... We'll, we, we. And engineering giant Rolls-Royce says it hopes to have small, modular nuclear reactors, SMRs, operating in Britain by the end of the decade. It's a reactor. It's a Rolls. They're all looking to open between 10 and 15 SMRs at sites in either Cumbria or Wales, whichever one has a more compliant population, I guess, with electricity selling for below 60 pence per megawatt hour. I guess that's cheap. SMRs are nuclear fission reactors. are about one-tenth the size of a regular nuclear power plant. They can be prefabricated in factories before being transported to the site to be assembled. Careful, guys. No, don't drop that. They're also small enough to be delivered on the back of a truck. <laughs> That's got to be good. Stein, uh, ooh, who's Stein? Chief technical tech, Technology Officer Paul Stein says, Rolls-Royce focus on driving down the cost of nuclear reactors means the projects are economically viable and can compete with some forms of renewable energy. Our desire is not to be creating a new nuclear reactor. In fact, the design of the nuclear reactor is one that we've been running for many, many years in power stations around the world. It's a relentless focus on cost, he says. when of relentless focus on... Say. And it's the first time, he says, that it's been done. The reactors could help revive an industry that has taken a blow. Manufacturing costs are expected to be $3 billion over budget at the new Hinckley Point C power station in Britain. A nuclear consulting group report, though, says the financial justification for SMRs is uncertain. Setting up SMR assembly lines is costly. The relative economics of production may remain unproven until very many SMR units have been produced, which paradoxically can't happen until a significant number of orders are placed. A circular dilemma. Sounds like a theme park ride to me. The nuclear circular dilemma. Line up on your left, and and now deadline Osaka, Japan. Kansai Electric Power Company says it's going to suspend operations at two nuclear reactors after missing the industry regulator's deadline. Deadline for lunchroom sanitation. Deadline for no to build counterterrorism facilities. That's all. This is from the Mainichi. In Japan, the suspension of the number two, uh, number three and four reactors at the Takahama plant for about five months from August and four months from October will be the second such shutdown in Japan. The Nuclear Regulation Authority had told Kansai Electric it must suspend operations if the facilities to be at least 100 meters away from the reactors and finished within five years of the start of construction were not ready around a week before the respective deadlines coming August and October. The two reactors are currently undergoing regular checkups, turn your head and cough, and not generating power. Kansai, which said construction would now be completed by November, said the move will result in its monthly fuel cost increasing by about $82.5 million, as it's going to need to use alternative power generation. It'll buy that from uh, other utilities. The Nuclear Regulatory Authority in Japan said a year ago it would not allow power companies to operate reactors if they failed to put in place sufficient counter-terrorism measures by its deadlines. And apparently, the company said, Deadlines, schmedlines, or breadlines. Its requirements include an emergency control room, standby power supply, and reactor coolant pump to maintain cooling procedures via remote control and prevent the release of radioactive materials, is all. Kansai has removed eight rods of a rare type of spent fuel made of plutonium-uranium mixed oxide from one of the reactors. Second such case in Japan, after one conducted at a plant in western Japan earlier this month, it's going to store that spent, as it's called, MOX mixed oxide fuel rods temporarily. Well, of course. What else you got? In a cooling pool at the plant, Japan has no reprocessing facilities for them, despite government and power companies' plans to reuse plutonium extracted by processing the spent fuel. That went nowhere. It's clean, it's cheap, it's safe, it's too nowhere to meter, our friend the atom. And now, time for me to read the trades for you. from advertising age Facebook lets users clear internet tracks marketers lose another signal to target ads get your get ready to shed some tears I'm going to read it for you Facebook has finally rolled out a clear history button that lets people erase their online tracks adding to the potential roadblocks advertisers face targeting consumers as more Internet companies lock down data. This week, Facebook made off-Facebook activity available to all its users after only releasing the privacy measure in a limited way last year. The option is available in People's Settings menu on the social network. It leads to a list of brands that have data on the user. People can see if brands Hulu, Crew, Home Depot, and any mass marketers, more sharing, more doing, have shared data with Facebook. Facebook users can also delete the data so the brand could no longer use that connection as a way of targeting the person with ads. It's similar to clearing the internet activity in a browser and erasing cookies. Once these tracks are erased, advertisers have a hard time retargeting the consumers that visit their websites, log into their apps, and make purchases in their stores. Hey, you bought something from me, but we want more. It also makes it difficult for advertisers to keep track of their marketing campaigns. If a person deletes their online tracks, a brand might not be able to tell if and when they served that person an ad and whether that ad was effective. That's what they call it. They call it serving. Have you been served an ad lately? You're welcome. However, it remains to be seen how many Facebook users are interested in managing their settings to erase the data. Advertisers say adoption among the public will be limited, so they're not overly concerned. Quote, I don't anticipate this getting sufficient scale to really impact our business, says George Manis president and chief media officer of OMD US oh my god quoting him again No, uh, this is quoting somebody else Aaron Goldman at a marketing technology company consumers have a track record of apathy when it comes to actively managing their privacy whether it's deleting cookies or clearing history these tools get very little usage and have very little impact on marketers unquote so put your handkerchiefs away No tears today. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg announced the new privacy tool in a blog post. Facebook has made a number of changes to the way it handles users' data. The company is responding to a more vigilant policy environment in the U.S. and around the world, where there have been concerns over how Internet companies protect people's personal data, led by Europe. In 2018 facebook banned third-party data providers kicking them off its automated ad platform so brands could no longer directly access their data to create targeting audiences it was a sign facebook would be stricter with how brands use consumer data to reach users on its platform facebook has warned that with less data available for ad targeting its ads might be less valuable with brands willing to pay less for them Google and Apple have made privacy enhancements, too, which affect the digital advertising world. Apple, the most aggressive with anti-tracking mechanisms in Safari, which prevents brands from connecting the dots as people bounce around the web through cookies. It's hard to get through cookies. You're getting a lot of dough on you. Earlier this month, Google announced it would take a cue from Apple and phase out third-party cookies within two years. The changes in how data is collected and shared could wind up helping the top internet advertising companies like Facebook and Google while squeezing out the companies that build advertising technology businesses based on the old system. If Google and Facebook control the data more tightly, advertisers say, then brands are more beholden to them to run their campaigns. Oh, it's bad for the little guy, is it? These moves, while they're being done in the spirit of consumer data privacy standards, Manas says, they're also pretty clearly advantageous to Facebook, Google, Amazon, and other major platform players who own and operate an ecosystem that is essentially one giant first-party data ecosystem. Brands and their ad tech partners are coming up with new ways to retrace the digital footprints back to consumers, while working within the new privacy framework. But you're not going to remain untargeted. Goldman of one of the targeting firms says, the trend in the industry is definitely moving towards more of a privacy focus and brands need to have strategies in place to target their most valuable customers without relying On second or third party data The first parties of course Google and Facebook Heads we win, tails we win A conclusion one might draw When I read the trades for you Copyrighted feature of this broadcast And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's uh, let's join the network.
3: Good morning. It's News Biscuit, CPR's daily morning once over lightly of the news in depth. For people in a hurry who still want to seem smart, I'm Ira Zipkin. Today, reverberations of the impeachment trial. Our West Coast co-anchor, Javier Wang, has the highlights of the details. She's the highest paid woman in American TV which is to say,
2: in TV. Now, Judge Judy, for the first time in decades, is revamping the format of her daytime hit show. The hardest work we do on the show is get the witnesses to be TV-ready and then to edit the heck out of their testimony, which very often is all over the place. So in this new environment, managers will present the case for and against the plaintiff, and I'll decide based on that. You know, we never thought getting rid of the witnesses would go over well with the public, but we sure do now. In fact, we'd be crazy not to. The new Witness-Free Judge Judy episodes will premiere in April, sooner if they're ready.
3: In Culver City, I'm Javier Wang. In nearby Hollywood, another show is making a big format change. Jared Blotkin is executive producer of the hit competition series, Who Told You You Could Sing? We've got some of the greatest stars of the recent music business as judges. And yet we were
1: spending so much of our time, our hour, on performances by contestants, almost all of whom you're never going to see again. Giving more airtime to the judges was almost a no-brainer. More like a new-brainer, you might say.
3: At least their agents thought so, and, and
1: now so do we.
3: And in the wake of the impeachment trial proceedings this week... A well-known religion is changing its name. Mary Margaret Mercer has the essence of the story.
2: Some of their followers are well-known celebrities. Their members are famous for going door-to-door offering free copies of their magazine. Now, leaks from the relatively secret hierarchy of the religious organization suggest a name change is in the offing. Citing polls showing a recent drop in public support for the role of witnessing... The Jehovah's Witness organization is planning to change its official identity to Jehovah's Verdict, says an anonymous spokesman. These are faster times. People hear witnessing and think it just takes too long. We hear them. I'm Mary Margaret Mercer, sitting right next to Ira.
3: And in a breaking development just before we came on air, attorneys for convicted murderer Phil Spector have filed an appeal of his conviction in federal court. In it, they claim that both the prosecution and the defense in his trial presented witnesses, which violated contemporary standards of fairness and inevitably prejudiced the jury. We'll be following this case. And that's the last bite of today's news biscuit. Support came from listeners like you, as well as from listeners who differ in many ways from you. Additional support came from listeners who we don't know what they're like. This is CPR, public radio for the rest of us.
1: From Santa Monica, this is the show, and now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Godly. The Catholic Church is attempting to stop one of its own priests from suing it for child abuse because he took too long to come forward, prompting criticism. It has learned nothing. This is in Australia from the Royal Commission, which was investigating child abuse in the church. The Lismore Diocese plans to seek a permanent stay in the uh, local Supreme Court, the New South Wales Supreme Court, to prevent one of its priests from suing for abuse he suffered as a 12-year-old altar boy. Court documents allege the altar boy was abused in the 1960s, the most painful decade to be abused, by Clarence David Anderson, a now-dead priest. The abuse is said to have occurred at a church, which sat on the grounds of a boarding school. Anderson was a priest and religious teacher. The boy was a boarder. On one occasion, the accuser alleges he was abused in the sacristy, where he had been the older boy following morning mass. The Catholic Church is defending the claim. Last week, vote to the plaintiff's lawyer, demanding the priest drop the case by uh, this week, warning it will pursue him for legal costs if he doesn't. Church's argument is that the time between the alleged offenses and the court case denied it any chance of a fair trial. The guy probably wanted witnesses, too. The delay in plaintiff bringing his claim, especially as he is a priest in the diocese, has permanently prejudiced our clients' capacity to investigate, respond to, and defend the allegations contained in the statement of claim, Church said in a letter seen by the Guardian. Your client is invited to withdraw the statement of claim, and if he does so prior to 6 February 2020, our client shall not seek a costs order. Reminder, the client, in that sentence, is the church. The, thought to be the first known example of a priest suing the Catholic Church in Australia for abuse. It's the second time in recent months the church, or the diocese at least, has attempted to have an abuse case thrown out due to delay. The Church's approach to delay conflicts with the findings of the Child Abuse Royal Commission in Australia, which found it was common for survivors to disclose their abuse and lodge a claim much later, often because they blame themselves for the abuse and are, quote, grossly embarrassed and ashamed, all of which make it difficult for them to tell anyone about the abuse for many years, unquote. The Royal Commission found almost 60% of victims were unable to disclose during childhood. It said the average time between alleged offending and a court case being lodged against the church was 33 years. The Royal Commission had also recommended the church take steps to better account for the delayed disclosure of abuse, like keeping records far longer. And Allegan, Michigan is the dateline. A Michigan priest accused of wrapping a teenager in bubble wrap was sentenced to last week to 60 days in jail for attempted false imprisonment. The Reverend Brian Stanley appeared in Allegan County Court 2 months after pleading guilty in a deal with the Attorney General's office. He was initially charged with false imprisonment. It's the boy in the bubble wrap. He was accused of wrapping a boy in bubble wrap and tape in 2013 in a janitor's room at St. Margaret Church. She's the patron saint of bubble wrap, I believe. No, that's not true. The boy's eyes and mouth were also covered while he was left alone for an hour. According to the attorney general, Stanley was supposed to be counseling the boy. Don't try to get out, was his... No, he did not speak in court, but has expressed regret about his actions. According to his defense attorney, after treatment, I think he realized perhaps he was projecting trauma that he had suffered in his life onto others, said his attorney. His conduct was sexually motivated, the Attorney General's office claimed. He'll be on a public registry for all of 15 years. The case against Stanley began when investigators looked at documents held by the Catholic Diocese in Kalamazoo. I said Kalamazoo. The Diocese has said it twice reported allegations about Stanley to police in 2013 and 2017, but no charges were filed. Because it's News of the Godly, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, the Apologies of the Week. Oh, strap in for this one.
0: We're so sorry.
1: More than 50 House lawmakers have sponsored a resolution. This is in Vermont. Have sponsored a resolution that would formally apologize for their predecessors' roles in the Vermont eugenics movement. Attention, Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, sorry, he's dead. The apology is a necessary step toward atoning for the sins of that dark period in Vermont's history, said the resolution's lead sponsor during testimony on Tuesday. For true healing to occur, we must acknowledge what this was and the great suffering it had caused Vermont citizens of the state, a state that was charged to protect them, he said. Resolution comes nearly 90 years after the Vermont legislature passed a law seeking to prevent the procreation of individuals thought to be at risk of having children who were, quote, idiots, imbeciles, feeble-minded, or insane, unquote. The law, passed halfway through the 12-year Vermont Eugenics Survey, paved the way for the sterilization of more than 250 people, most of whom were Native Americans, French Canadians, people of color, and the poor. That's just a nutty coincidence. These procedures occurred often without their fully informed voluntary consent, according to the resolution, which expresses the legislature's sincere sorrow to those who were harmed as a result of these state-sanctioned acts. Quote, the devastating impact on the lives of the sterilized individuals and their families was irreversible. The resolution says eugenics was a widely popular theory and considered progressive in its day and in Jeffrey Epstein's day. Among its supporters, President Theodore Roosevelt and Planned Parenthood founder Margaret Sanger. Last year, the State Department of Libraries chose to rename the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Book Award over her involvement. The legislature has also struggled with how to acknowledge this period of the state's history. The House attempted two similar resolutions a decade ago. Neither made it out of the chamber. Neither did Margaret Canfield Fisher. Daylon, Lebanon, Tennessee, a white Tennessee judge, has apologized after saying in open court that he was, quote, going to work like a regular white man and not a slave, unquote. The Tennessean reports Judge Haywood Barry made the comment while scheduling a hearing for a black defendant. Audio shows he was talking to an attorney about the schedule Why he explained when he explained why he wouldn't work a second shift. Tennessee Code of Judicial Conduct prohibits judges from bias. Barry apologized, saying he's ashamed that, quote, something like that would even come out of his brain, unquote. An ABC News correspondent was suspended this week over inaccurate reporting on the death of Kobe Bryant and his 13-year-old daughter, Gianna. Matt Gutman, Gutman, chief national correspondent for the network, erroneously reported that all four of Bryant's daughters were on the helicopter when it crashed Sunday, killing all nine people on board. Gutman later apologized on air for the mistake after it became apparent that only one ...of his daughters had been in the chopper. He was suspended for the mistake, according to E! News. Reporting the facts accurately is the cornerstone of our journalism, the network said. As acknowledged on Sunday, Matt Gutman's initial reporting was not accurate and failed to meet our editorial standards. Unquote ABC. This is from Matt Gutman. Today I inaccurately reported it was believed that four of Kobe's children were on board that flight. That is incorrect. I apologize to Kobe's family, friends, and our viewers... In a statement provided to E! News, Gutman again apologized to the Bryant family for any additional anguish his report caused. We're in the business of holding people accountable, he said, and I hold myself accountable for a terrible, terrible mistake, which I deeply regret. Unquote. Matt Gutman. ABC did not immediately respond to a request for comment from NBC. This Macy's tell Kimball's, the BBC has apologized for using footage of LeBron James during a news segment on the f- death of the former LA Lakers player Kobe Bryant. Using the footage of LeBron instead of Kobe, it told viewers that Kobe uh, of Kobe's death while showing a photograph of Bryant with his daughter, with his daughter, but it then aired a clip which appeared to show current Lakers player James walking off the court. At the end of the bulletin, Rita Chakrabarty, Rita Chakrabarty, who was reading the news of the BBC at the time, said, quote, in our coverage of the death of Kobe Bryant in one section of the report, we mistakenly showed pictures of another basketball player, unquote. Rita Chakrabarty, Afghan Prime Minister Sarwar Darnesh apologized over forgery of a group photo this week. A group photo taken on Monday at Sadarat Palace in Kabul was published on the second vice president's official Facebook page. Does the third vice president have one? Quote, it was a technical error from our office for which I apologize, and we've republished the original version of the photo, Dinesh said in a statement published on his Facebook wall. That wall did not collapse under a high winds this past week. The British um, Embassy in Kabul published the original version of the photo, which was taken after the signing ceremony of the Global Pledge on Media Freedom. Here's your irony for you. The Archbishop of the Archbishops of Canterbury and York have apologized after the Church of England declared only heterosexual married couples should have sex. The rest of you just roll around in the straw. Archbishops Justin Welby and John Sentamu said they took responsibility for releasing the church statement last week, which they acknowledged had, quote, jeopardized trust, unquote. The pastoral guidance was issued to clergy after a recent change in UK law allowed straight couples to tie the knot in a civil ceremony instead of a traditional marriage. The Archbishop duo said in a statement, we as archbishops alongside the bishops of the Church of England apologize and take responsibility for releasing a statement last week which we acknowledge has jeopardized trust. We are very sorry and recognize the division and hurt this has caused. Unquote. The pastoral statement from the House of Bishops of the Church of England said, quote, sexual relationships outside heterosexual marriage are regarded as falling short of God's purposes for human beings. Unquote. Dear Lord, just reveal those purposes to us one more time, won't you? Or in the, uh, in the dulcet tones of the Senate, Chaplain, Dear Lord, reveal to us your plan for us. That was amazing. The Boston Globe issued an apology Tuesday after referring to a group of black musicians as, quote, anthropoids, unquote, in an article about the upcoming lineup at a music festival called Boston Calling. The original article praised the festival for including local talent after being criticized for not booking enough local acts in recent years. Rock weirdos Dinosaur Jr. play Sunday as do Lowell bred rock hitmakers PVRIS and Swiss army knife rapper Cliff Notes. The article read Hip Hop Anthropoids Camp Blood, meanwhile, are on Saturday. That's a quote. This is according to WGBH-FM which does not carry this program. Anthropoids translates to ape-man in most dictionaries. Camp Blood is comprised of musicians Hassan Barclay and Shaka Dendi, both African-American men. After replacing the term with trailblazers, the Globe issued the apolog- following apology. Quote, due to errors by a writer and editor an earlier version of the story, contained a term to describe the band Camp Blood, that in the context it was used, is racist. The word the writer intended to use was Android. The story has been updated to remove the reference. The Globe deeply regrets the error and extends its apologies to Camp Blood and to Globe readers, unquote. In response to the article, Camp Blood member Hassan Barkley expressed his frustration over the racist descriptor on Twitter as a musician who fights against racism with his music. Quote, Boston's really not for us, he tweeted. Dude... (laughs) (laughs) I was there back then. Norman, Oklahoma city councilors passed a proclamation formally acknowledging, condemning, and apologizing for the city's former status as a sundown town. For those of you who aren't familiar with the term, that was a town in the South or the Midwest or other places in the United States where it was well known that African Americans were in grave danger if they were in town after the sun went down. Until 1967, there was an agreement among realtors to not sell homes to minorities. That ended when Dr. George Henderson, his wife, mother-in-law, and seven children, moved. I didn't really realize until after we got here that this was a sundown town, he said. Years later, Henderson asked the realtor why his company sold the home to the family. He told me if we had not sold you a house, I couldn't have lived with my conscience, he remembered. To move us forward from our past, we have to acknowledge it. Norman Mayer Bree. That's three E's. Clark said, the point of the proclamation is not to make people feel bad. It's to acknowledge where we were and where we want to go in the future. Henderson was able to purchase a house, but not everybody in Norman was ready for its first African-American family. Obscene telephone calls, garbage on the lawn, people yelling profanities, racial slurs, people stopping me at night asking why I was in the neighborhood. Henderson recalled all that. It was just the opposite of what I was looking for. He was the third African-American professor at the University of Oklahoma, but none before him dared to live in town. Even OU's first African-American student lived in Oklahoma City. Even after death threats to him and his family, Henderson said Norman was always the place he was meant to live and teach. Deadline Melbourne, Australia. Tennis great Martina Navratilova. And John McEnroe have apologized for a breach of protocol at the Australian Open. Did you know they had protocol there? They were taken to task by tournament organizers for an on court protest against Margaret Court. Navratilova and McEnroe called for Court's name to be stripped from the second show court at the venue for the Australian Open and replaced by Australia's former world number one, Yvonne Gulagong. Australian Margaret Court holds the all-time record of 24 Grand Slam single titles, but she's been heavily criticized for voicing her religious-based opposition to same-sex marriage and transgender athletes. But the governing body, Tennis Australia, condemned Navrat Chilova's and Mc- McEnroe's protest at the arena as a breach of protocol. I got in trouble. I'm sorry I broke protocol said 18-time Grand Slam champion Navratilova, who is openly gay. I had no idea there was this kind of protocol. Had I known, I would have done it differently, but I would have still tried to make my statement, which is that you name buildings after not what just people did on the court, but also off the court, the whole body of work. So I've said my piece, but I do apologize about breaking protocol. I did not need to do that, unquote, Navratilova. McEnroe also claimed ignorance of the protocols, just like me. Quote, admittedly, I was never one to study the rule book carefully, or for that matter, even at times, abide by the rules, he said. For that, I apologize to Tennis Australia and recognize and appreciate the great job they've done to make the Australian Open a great event for fans, players, and myself, unquote. Court was honored in a low-key ceremony at the Rod Laver Arena on Monday, marking the 50th anniversary of her 1970 calendar Grand Slam. The president of Tennis Australia... Said removing court's name from the stadium was not on the governing body's agenda. I didn't even know they had a. Ge- I didn't know they had a protocol. I didn't know they had an agenda. on Amsterdam Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte apologized for how his kingdom's wartime government failed its Jews, a first by a sitting prime minister. He during a Holocaust commemoration he offered apologies for the government of those days. While the last survivors are still with us, that government, he said, failed in its responsibility as provider of justice and security for Dutch Jews. Rote, in power for 10 years, has resisted calls for issuing such apologies, including from the Dutch chief rabbi. Some 75% of the 140,000 Jews who lived in the Netherlands before the Holocaust were murdered by German Nazis and their local collaborators. The Dutch police under Nazi occupation and the National Railway Company were widely complicit in hunting down Jews and transporting them to death camps and concentration camps. At the same time, the Netherlands had a strong resistance movement and has the second largest number of righteous among the nations. That's the designation reserved for non-Jews who were recognized by Israel for risking their lives to save Jews during the Holocaust. Just behind Poland, France, Belgium, and Luxembourg have officially apologized for their authorities' roles in the systematic annihilation of Jews in statements. In 1995, Queen Beatrix made the first official recognition by a Dutch head of state of Holocaust-era complicity. When She said that her countrymen who saved Jews during the Holocaust were exceptions. She said in Holland that thinking about the Holocaust should fill us with a deep feeling of shame, but she did not apologize. That's royal prerogative. David Lonsdale, Minnesota, Minnesota Roman Catholic priest apologized this week for saying in a sermon that Islam was the greatest threat in the world to the United States and Christianity. The Reverend Nick Vandenbroek apologized in a statement issued by the St. Paul minnesota catholic archdiocese he had made the comments in a sermon at the church where he serves as pastor japanese billionaire yusaku meizawa is explaining his decision to end participation in a reality tv matchmaking show that would have traced the selection of a woman contestant to accompany him on a trip around the moon he announced the change of heart in his request to cancel the show In a series of tweets, the 44-year-old fashion retailing entrepreneur announced the casting call for full moon lovers two weeks ago. Grand prize was to have been around the moon trip with Mezawa on SpaceX's Starship in the early 2020s. That's uh, Elon Musk's company. He admitted he had missed feelings about the reality TV show even when he agreed to do it. To think that 27,000 women with earnest intentions and courage had used their precious time to apply makes me feel extremely remorseful to conclude and inform everyone with this selfish decision of mine, he wrote. He apologized to the applicants as well as to the staff of the TV channel saying he was truly sorry from the bottom of my heart. Maybe he just discovered that uh, SpaceX's customer service wasn't what it was supposed to be. Another Rich Guy apologized. A South African billionaire businessman has apologized for telling U.S. President Trump that Africa loves you during uh, the World Economic Forum in Davos. His comments drew criticism even among South African cabinet ministers. Finance Minister Tito Mbuei said the billionaire's views did not represent those of the government. Trump has been criticized for his comments about Africa. You know the one I mean. It involved a hole. Deadline Window Rock, Arizona, after hearing from at least a dozen Navajos who felt the new logo for its Aspen, Colorado store appropriated the Navajo Nation seal, clothing retailer Mad Happy has apologized and offered to donate all proceeds from clothing bearing the design to the tribe. The executive director of the nation's Division of Economic Development... J.T. Willie wrote in an email that he had spoken to Mad Happy representatives after learning the company was possibly losing the tribal seal without permission and selling it for a profit. Our conversation was positive, Willie said. We discussed how we can move forward in a collective manner to correct the misunderstanding of the design they've used. Unquote. In an online apology letter Mad Happy sent to Navajos, who'd questioned the design on social media, the company said the artwork for the Mad Happy Aspen Snowmass design had been outsourced, and company higher-ups were unaware of its resemblance to the Navajo Nation seal. It was brought to our attention that artwork we used on a recent garment bore resemblance to the Navajo Nation seal. We would like to take this time to offer our sincerest apologies to the Navajo Nation for any offense or distress that this may have caused, the company statement said. The Apologies of the Week, copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it for this week's edition of Le Show. Next week at the same time and same station, back again, and on your audio device of choice whenever you want it. And it'd be just like Witnesses, if you'd agree to join with me then, would you? Already, thank you very much. Uh-huh. the show chapeau to the San Diego Desk and to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walter, WWNO New Orleans, for help with today's program. The email address for this broadcast, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts, and the playlist for the music, all at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions, originating through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.